Hello and welcome to the Law in Sport podcast with me, Sean Cottrell, the founder and CEO of Law in Sport. If you haven't tuned in before, the Law in Sport podcast is here to help you understand the latest legal issues and developments from the world of sport. Our guest today is Jonathan Taylor QC, who is the chair of WADA's Independent Compliance Review Committee, the CRC, whose recent set of recommendations was endorsed by the WADA Executive Committee to declare the Russian anti-doping agency as non-compliant. In this interview, John provided some analysis and insight into why the CRC made their set of recommendations. If you enjoy it as much as I did, please do tell people about it. And if you enjoy the podcast, please do share it on social media. Um, we'd like any comments or feedback. And wherever you are, or whatever time of day it is in the world, I hope you're having a wonderful day. And thank you so much for tuning in. I'm here in the offices of Bird and Bird in London, currently looking at this fantastic view of the London Eye with uh, someone who's now becoming a regular guest. Well, this is his second appearance at least. Jonathan Taylor QC, who is the co-head of sport for Bird and Bird Sports Group. John. Morning. How are you? Very good, thank you. Um, thank you so much for taking the time out. I know, I think you were travelling for a large part of the week and then yep. you've literally just hopped off a plane yep. last night and then you're doing this this morning. So thank you so much. The reason... Um, and the back, I think everyone now involved in sport will probably know who you are <laughs> by now because uh, you've been quoted pretty much in every media outlet um, and no doubt you've come up in a lot of discussions at various board meetings across, <laughs> across sport. The reason um, that I would like to interview you today was to get a clearer understanding of the background to the recommendations you made with the Compliance Review Committee around the decision to declare Rusada non-compliant because and we were talking about this earlier but from as I see it as maybe a less educated anti-doping enthusiast let's say the coverage so far really hasn't actually gone into that I've read anyway hasn't really gone into actual some of the legal underpinnings of why some of the recommendations may take place and I'm really curious to see um if it well, I think it would be helpful for people to have a better feel for that because rather than just make recommendations, no doubt, I'll, you know, I've known you for a while now. I would imagine there was some some uh, deep thought that went into that before, rather than making these recommendations. Yeah. So perhaps um, I'm not sure if it would be best to go through each recommendation in point, or would you like to just uh, maybe outline some of the considerations that, uh, of the restraints, essentially, that you have to consider when you're making recommendations that you want to be adopted and applied? Well, I will do that. Let me step back at the beginning, because actually this starts for me from, well, I suppose 2016, even before that. This work I'm doing now is as chair of the WADA Independent Compliance Review Committee. And I was appointed to that role at the end of 2016. That was the Rio Games. And you'll remember there was real controversy then because that was when the, the Russian doping and cover-up was first exposed. And WADA said they're non-compliant and recommended a ban. And it was up to each signatory, IOC, IFs, to decide what to do. And... Some took one stance, some took another stance. I acted for the IAAF and the IPC who said total ban. Others said not. 
and you could argue about which was the right response, but what was absolutely disastrous was the fact there were all these different responses instead of one solid decision that everyone recognises and enforces. So when I came in in the end of 2016, the mandate from the Foundation Board was fix that, fix the rules, so that we've got a mechanism that allows us, if there is non-compliance, to have one process that everyone's got a um, fair hearing in and ability to intervene and make their arguments, but at the end of it, there's one decision and everyone enforces it. In the same way as you have in an individual case, if you charge an athlete, if he's banned for four years, even if it's a NARDO, the IAF has to recognise it, the IOC has to recognise it. So the same thing. And it's important that we understand that as the starting point for this, because really the, the it's been built from there. We've got a new code and a new international standard for code compliance by signatories, which we was adopted effective April 2018. So September 2018 comes through and we reinstate Rusada. And you remember what a popular decision that was, I'm being sarcastic. But the whole point of that decision, we said, you're reinstated on the condition that you provide the data. We'll come back to what the data is in a minute. But the point, everyone said, why did you say to them, why didn't you say provide the data and then you'll be reinstated? The answer is because we wanted the new rules to apply. If they provided this data, um, if they if they had provided this data under the old rules, well, first of all, they wouldn't have provided the data. It just wouldn't have happened. But if they had and they had provided tampered with data, we couldn't have done anything about it. So the key was to get the new rules in effect. And the reason I explain that in such detail is because we've been working towards this goal. We knew there was clearly going to be a risk that they wouldn't take the opportunity, the Russians, to draw a line, move forward, provide the data and be done with it. We knew there was a, a risk they'd temper with it and we wanted the new rules to apply. And that's what's happened. So we'll get back to the detail of the data, but where we've got to now is we've got a clear report from WADA Investigations and Intelligence. They've been reporting to the CRC since the data was provided in January 2019. And as soon as they said in May to us there are discrepancies, um, we said, right, you've got to investigate those, you've got to focus on this period, and they've been going with the independent experts, really um, you know, impressive individuals. I can't pretend to understand all of the detail of it, but the factual findings they've made show clear tampering with that data. I suppose I, I should just explain that data for the listeners just in case anyone isn't clear. So the original cover-up or the original doping scheme was alleged to be from after 2011 through to Sochi and beyond. And the allegation was there was doping and it was covered up, one, by effectively hiding positive tests, that's the disappearing positives. And secondly, when that wasn't possible because it was the Olympics and therefore there were foreign experts in the lab, instead of hiding positives, they swapped the samples so there wouldn't be any positives. This data now is about disappearing positives because a whistleblower provided a copy of the LIMS database, the Laboratory Information Management System database, that had effectively a hidden hidden section showing samples that were reported as negative had positives. Not confirmed positives in all cases. Um, presumptive positives sometimes confirmed, but always buried, disappeared. So that indicated that the allegations of the disappearing positive were true. But the Russians denied it. 
So we wanted to get that a copy of their LIMS database to compare the two, um, to prove that it was authentic, what we had, but also to get the underlying data. The instruments, when a sample goes into the lab, the instruments analyze it and they spit out raw data. Software then converts that into the chromatograms that show the peaks, that show the presence of the prohibited substance. So the LIMS database is just a sort of running total of what's happened where. What you need to prove the case is the underlying data. So we said to them, you're reinstated, but you must produce the a copy of the LIMS database so we can compare the two, the one we got in, we call it the 2015 copy against the 2019 copy, and we want the underlying raw data. We knew, and we also said, and there are certain samples you've got that we also want. January, they gave us access. WADA's team went in and was given access to the computers and took, I think it's 24 terabytes of data. I don't know what that means, but apparently it's, it's a, a whole lot, lot of data. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> we also got 2,262 samples. So what's happened now? They've said, look, a lot of this data um, hasn't been tampered with. It's proven that the lab didn't report all the positives that it found. So the disappearing positives, that aspect of the conspiracy is confirmed. No one can deny it anymore, and that's an important thing. But secondly, a lot of the cases that WADA was interested in, and there's thousands of samples in the database, but there are, th let's call it 300, which they really thought a high priority. These look serious. And of those, more than half, there's no tampering. And so they're going through those. It takes a while, but so far they've referred more than 40 to different international federations and that and they're looking at them now to say well is there enough here to bring up to bring a use case and i think so far about 15 have been brought and they're going through the others in addition to that they've started retesting the samples and they've only tested 94 so far and 14 of those are positives that's a 15 percent success rate which as you well know is a lot higher than normal testing so you've already got something like 30 cases pending against cheats and another 15 considered and more in the pipeline. And there's, as I say, about 150 where there's been no tampering and there's 2,262 samples. So in terms of proving the conspiracy and proving and catching cheats, yes, we've made some significant progress. But on 145 of those high priority cases so just under half the data's been deleted or interfered with and at the moment we're stymied we cannot take those forward and of course that is extremely serious it's extremely serious because it means we can't catch those cheats and do justice for those who were cheated but it also means they didn't take that opportunity to draw a line and move on so that's why that's where we got to in september and october the experts from WADA's side have met with the Russian experts and they're very clear on the facts. There's hundreds of pages of facts, but in the recommendation which you referred to, 28 pages long, we set out in detail what those factual findings are. The most remarkable being that the main Russian response to the suggestion of tampering is it was Rodchenkov. Look at these messages that he sent to um, Sobolevsky and his co-conspirators um, about how we're going to fabricate findings and extort money from athletes. And that was that they were very incriminating messages. The problem is that they were themselves fabricated and planted into the evidence. And the Wada's independent experts found that. And that shows the lengths that people will go to. 
uh, and it also shows why it is that the CRC said this is not just very serious um, non-compliance with the requirements to provide authentic data, but it's also a case of aggravating circumstances. So, sorry for that long build-up. No, no, it's now, necessary. Now I get to the recommendations. Once you've found those facts, the international standard is very clear. It says, here is the range of sanctions. Here are the principles you follow to decide what are the appropriate sanctions in the facts of this case. And, it said, and in the recommendation, I go through them. What's the extent of the harm? What's the extent of the fault? Is it intentional? Is it deliberate? What's the extent of the harm? Well, here there's 145 cases. And then the most important thing is what is needed in order to maintain the confidence of stakeholders that WADA and its, its movement will do what is necessary to retain confidence in the system. Are they ready to stand up and send a message, this conduct is not acceptable? So that's what we did. We sat down as the CRC uh, and I have to say, I pay tribute to the members of the CRC. The others are not lawyers, but they're sports movement, public authorities, uh, an athlete representative, and two compliance experts. And they take their duties very seriously. And we applied the principles. We went through the recommendations. There's a starting point in the appendix to the standards that say, in a critical case, here's your starting point. You move up or down. And we just went through them one by one and said, well, what do we do here? Do we go... Is, if we go this far, does that achieve the objectives? Does it go too far? Is it disproportionate? We, we applied this usual legal analysis. We said, what consequences are required to punish, to send a message, to deter people from doing this again? And we set it out plainly and transparently in the decision, which is available, it's on the website. So we've got nothing to hide. I want people to come in and say, this works, this doesn't work. So so, so I, I read the um, recommendations and thought they were very clear and very detailed. Um, you to, <laughs> I was going to do a commentary on it, and I was like, oh, I don't need to, because it, 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 I thought that there was... Um, yeah, a lot of detail put in there, including the right to appeal, what would happen next, and so we weren't left guessing or trying to quickly, uh, you know, get up the standards to work out um, what was going to happen. You're obviously known as being a very smart lawyer. Uh, it's and, not and quite the comment most people <laughs> yeah, make this week. Okay. There we are. Sorry, I should say one of the things that people say about you is that you're, you're a very smart lawyer. Now, in your mind. You, and you would do this, I would imagine, instinctively. You will be thinking about where's the, you know, we're talking about proportionality, or you just mentioned the word proportionality, that you would have that when you're making recommendations. Because one of the things that I've been surprised about is, um, and I understand why people are so upset about it. I get that side of it. Absolutely, you know, no one wants to, you know, to compete in sport and be cheated. That's it's it's it's. It's awful, particularly for those people who have sacrificed so much to do it uh, fairly and cleanly. However, there seems to be a bit of an anti-Russian, a very almost simplifying the argument that it's just basically all Russians and that um, all Russians should be banned. But from what you were saying, then 50% of them, was pr the data showing that there was no adverse findings. So therefore, is it proportionate? So how did you have to balance up your recommendations, basically, towards the athletes who who maybe are Russian athletes who are competing outside of the 
uh, outside of Russia. They're under. They've been. They've met that criteria. They've been under the same um, anti-doping protocols as many other athletes uh, who are calling for for a Russian-wide ban. Um, how much did that factor into the decision? Because for me, I'm quite an idealist person, and I always get brought bound <laughs> quite quickly back down to reality when people say to me, well, actually, it's great that you say that, but legally, this is not actually going to be uh, robust enough. So how much did that factor in it? Because surely you'd be thinking about, as you were saying, about having this one decision that could be applied by the signatories, that you'd have to have something that, you know, they would not want to have to apply something in which they could risk being litigated heavily over. Well, absolutely. And that's one of the reasons why this is just a recommendation and now effectively a charge to Russia and the Rusada. And if they don't accept it, it goes to CAS and WADA has to prove its case. And, you know, uh, every litigator's lot, you get marked on your homework and I'm going to be marked on my homework very publicly. So we'll find out. The first question for any CAS will be, uh, CAS panel will be, what's the legal basis for the sanctions, right? Before you get to proportionality, where's the legal basis in your rules to impose these consequences? And the answer is, it's in the code and in the International Standard for Code Compliance by Signatories. And we tried in there, I tried in there, to anticipate all of these issues and try and put provisions in. So, for example, some people are saying, well, it's not Rusada's fault, it's the Russian government. Well, we put into there, it was an issue that was litigated in the IPC case uh, back in 2016 when they excluded the Russian Paralympic Committee. In, in that case, the CAS said, look, the RPC argued, look, we're not responsible for delivering the anti-doping program. Um, it's Rusada, it's the lab, it's the government. And I argued in response for the IPC, look, you're responsible. You may need support, you may need help, but it's your responsibility as a signatory to the code. Just like an athlete might say, well, I need my doctor, I need my coach to help me with anti-doping. You can do that, but you're still responsible. Same applies to a signatory to the code. And that is an anticipation of the argument we've now got, and it's set out in the standard and says, you can't blame, you can't say it's not my fault, it's someone else's fault. But anyway... We've got the legal basis to apply the sanctions. As you say, the next issue is, is proportionality. I want to be clear, proportionality means going no further than is necessary to achieve your objectives, but it also means going as far as is necessary, and that's where the debate happens. We were very clear at the CRC, there needs to be a really strong sanction because we need to change behaviour I was going to say we need to change culture. Look, a culture changes generations, okay? So I'm not going to say we're going to change culture, but we need to send a real strong message that means people really think twice, three times before doing this sort of thing. So how did we think we could do that? Well, the answer is people say you should have had a blanket ban in Tokyo. Well, what we said was, hang on, forget Tokyo. We're going to apply this ban for four years. Tokyo, Beijing... All the major events in between, major event organisations, so multi-sport events in between, like the European Games, uh, Pan American Games and so on. Um, but also world championships. Every world championships for every sport that's a signatory to the code. So this is much broader, much broader. What did we say? No representatives of the government. They can't, they can't sit on any signatories board or committee, and that's going to have an impact, but they can't attend the events. So President Putin can't attend when his team goes and wins medals or win, tries to win an event, he won't be there. No flag. 
any any athletes if they're going to be there they're there as neutrals if they prove they're not implicated if they prove they've been tested they're there as neutrals not as representatives of russia russian olympic committee officials not there now people may say oh well if the uh, athletes are there then it's a sham there's there's nothing to it russia's really there believe me the response that we've got is very clear for russia a state that takes uses sport as a symbol of national power and pride not to have your president your government officials there not to have the olympic committee officials there not to have the flag not to have the colors of the country there is a very significant blow to their pride and i think and i and i don't shy away from that that's what we want we want them to feel shamed we want them to know that they forfeited their right to be there and to have an effect on them so, so i that all makes sense now one of the things so immediately <clears throat> one of the things that came out that people focused on was the world cup um and obviously i'm not aware of how many football players if any are, uh, are marked down uh, as being suspicious or had had um missing data um but so I went to, and I'm not sure if it's the right place to go, but immediately I go to look at the anti-doping regulations of FIFA to see if they've got any provisions in place to deal with a circumstance like this. And I couldn't find any. I'm not sure if you've already had a peek. I couldn't find any. But they obviously have other mechanisms in which they deal with ethical issues, corruption and so forth, which I'm sure that they could um, use. And I'm sure they are looking at at the moment. But it made me contemplate given that we've seen issues over the um, last year or two with people interpreting wider provisions differently <laughs> than, than what was uh, they well, than what they signed up to, um, how much of a potential problem do you see that, that an international federation or another uh, co-signature co of some sort of government or whoever doesn't either, I guess there's a couple of circumstances, one, doesn't apply it, what happens next? Secondly, they've got themselves in a bit of a uh, a legal mess because their statutes and or disciplinary provisions don't provide for actually taking action, even though that in the code it clearly says in international standards that the co-signatures should make sure that they have, uh, you know, the statutes should reflect what was in the code. But as you know, as, <laughs> as well as I do, uh, sometimes these things get missed in the heat of trying to, uh, you know, get a sport to, you know, run and, you know, to, 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 to function. Well, the starting point is the code is very clear. Once there is a final decision, probably going through CAS, um, then everyone must recognise, enforce it within their jurisdiction. And by the way, FIFA or any other international federation has a right to participate in those CAS proceedings. We're trying to make it fair. Everyone, and if, you, if you've got a problem with the consequences, you can participate and argue about it. But once there's a decision, you're bound, and it's an obligation on you to recognise and enforce those sanctions. So FIFA wouldn't dream of letting a football player who'd been banned by UK anti-doping participate in the World Cup if the ban applied. They wouldn't do it. They couldn't do it. And it's exactly the same for these provisions now. Now, have they translated that into their rules? I don't know. What I do know is their statutes will say the World Anti-Doping Code applies. So in their statutes, the highest, the highest um, rule book in their in or 
set of rules in their rule book, it will say the code applies. And I say that means that these provisions about enforcement apply. Let me be clear, I'm sure there'll be some international federations that say, I don't care, I'm not applying them. Then they'll be non-compliant themselves and there will be compliance proceedings brought against them. So we got to be, I'm, I'm not, this is the beginning of the end, not the end. <laughs> There's no doubt about that. But let's just focus on the neutral athlete mechanism because you were talking about that and I need to come back to yeah, the arguments yeah. about yeah, why. But in terms of enforcement first, what we've said is, if an athlete can prove that they are not implicated by the original limbs data, and that means, first of all, if they weren't competing before 2016, then they won't be implicated, right? Uh, if they were competing before 2016, they could be implicated. They're going to have to show that they're not. If they can do that, they then have to show they've got sufficient testing. So two different hurdles. There may be other conditions, but those are the two fundamentals. And then it will be, well, on what basis can you compete? And the answer is... No flag, no anthem, no colours. It's neutral, not as representatives of Russia. Of course, there's going to be some variation from sport to sport and event in terms of exactly how you implement that. The key thing is the standard says WADA supervises and controls, so you get some consistency and you get um, adherence to minimum standards. From my perspective, my experience, the IAAF has the authorised neutral athlete. In Pyeongchang, the IPC had authorised neutral athletes, that to me is the model that should be followed. But but let's, so that's the implementation. Now let's go to the argument and... and sorry, and on the part I just want to reiterate, I think that is so important. If you believe in clean sport, and the objective is to, if you, and I don't even like that term, clean sport, I, don't, I really don't like it, I don't think it's well, well defined, I don't think everyone agrees exactly what it is. But so if you believe in, in, in athletes completing, that, that, that should compete, that haven't committed any violations, then you should be positively supportive, or sorry, not positively, you should be supportive of that because that, that is the system that you want. You wouldn't want to be in that situation that you've done nothing, essentially you haven't been proven to do anything wrong. You would like the right to compete and it's a bit, it's like having due process, you know, the right to a fair trial, etc. justice, fairness. Look, I, I agree. I mean, I'd say two things to that. Um, I, I think that there is... There is a good argument to say, even for the innocent, there comes a point where a blanket ban is required to send that message. I mean, that's what the IWF did in 16 and the IPC did, so I can't say otherwise. I think there could be occasions where you say, this has gone so far, there's so many people implicated, there has to be a blanket ban. So I don't pretend otherwise, and that's the argument for now. But against that, you say, well, if you're going to say innocent shouldn't be punished, which must be a really strong, compelling argument, then you can say, well, but how do I know they're innocent? How do I know they're clean? How do I know it's fair for me? And I think you can have confidence in that for two reasons. Number one, are they implicated by the LIMS database? Well, we know the names. We know the 145 athletes, not me personally, but Gunter Younger in the INI team, they know the names. The intelligence so, unit at WADA, sorry. What's that? The intelligence team at WADA. Yeah. Yes, the WADA Intelligence and Investigations Department. So no one has to worry that people who are implicated are going to get through this mechanism. They're not. Secondly, they say, well, yeah, but they're Russian. Uh, is the testing any good anymore? Well, since 2016, there's been very significant efforts made. Rusada is working well. The barriers to international federations testing in Russia have been removed. Um... Rusada is being able to in conduct investigations in, in accordance with or 
coordination with the Athletics Integrity Unit. You saw the Lysenko decision recently where the AIU said thank you to Rusada for your help. So is it perfect? No. Can people get through it? Yes. Is it as good as or better than any anti-doping system in any other country? Yeah, it is. So for people to say, well, it's not fair for me to, I'm not sure if I can trust the Russians. Well, their testing is as good as the testing you're doing. So you've got to be a bit careful about that. But even then, if you say we can be confident that these are clean athletes, and even if you say I understand that because they're neutral, that will be a blow to Russia's pride, you can still argue and say, I don't think it's going to be enough to force behavioural change. And I think that is a very respectable, completely reasonable argument. I also think that reasonable people can disagree with it without lacking integrity. And I cannot tell you how frustrated I am to read my good friend Travis saying, well, you disagree, that's because you're in paid to the IOC. I really take offence at that. I do. There was a very careful consideration by the CRC. Should we go further? Do, is, is having this ban, which applies to all of these events, not just the Olympics, down to World Championships for four years, no government officials, no Olympic officials, no Russian flag, no Russian colours, neutral athletes, does that go far enough or do we need to go further? And our judgment was when you balance what we think is the impact of that against the unfairness of innocent athletes being excluded, we thought it was right to draw the line where we did. And again, I don't mind people saying you're wrong, that's too weak. I, we can see reasonable people disagree because even the WADA Athletes Committee is split down the middle, right? So, we, and I've seen various athletes committees come out and say it's too weak and others say, no, we agree with it. So I have no problem with the argument I do have a problem with people saying, you disagree with me, so you lack integrity. For me, it's always a lack of uh, actual interaction that, that causes people to speculate on things like that so much because I'm very quick to judge normally initially when I see things, I go, oh, Jonathan's going to make this decision because of whatever, or Travis is going to say, Travis, Travis always says this, right? And so you do, you know, you, you know, he always comes out and gives a public statement. Uh, yeah. And yet, if I have a conversation with Travis, or I have a conversation with you, or I have a conversation with any of the, the parties, often people, one, I find that people are very willing to speak like you. Like when we, I contacted you and said, hey, are you happy to talk about this? Because I'd like to get into it a little bit more. And you said, yes, I would. And I was delighted. And that's been generally been the response. But I think particularly in the heat of the moment when emotions are running high, People forget to do that. They forget to pick up the phone. They forget to have a conversation, and then they just throw statements out. And sometimes, uh, yeah, they can be unhelpful. Once it's said, you can't really take it back. So um, I take your point on that. I've had similar things banded about me years ago. It was only a minor thing, and it, it deeply upset me because something integrity. If, if you pride yourself on your integrity, is something that uh, means a lot. Um, so I'm sympathetic to that. Um, so coming back, so. That's just a fantastic explanation. Really helpful. Thank you. And I, and I think it's great to recognise as well. And again, this is probably where I'm not that, that, that you know, on the other side, not with some of the athletes. You know, I think you're right. It's a reasonable expectation that they're saying, right, we can't trust, you know, we need to do something and have the blanket ban. And I should probably give that more consideration than I have. So thanks for, for, for highlighting that for me. In terms of then the Compliance Review Committee, it would seem to me 
looking at this then this is like an evolution of a regulatory system in which first point it was getting wilder you know wilder to you know getting wilder code in existence getting wilder in existence so the code etc and now we're moving to this more sophisticated model of actually which is has been the the the, the bane of uh wilder's existence which is how do we actually get people in practice to comply and so is this is this next stage about right so you've tightened up the international standards and so it addresses that issue for uniformity and now we've got this point which is the next stage which is right now let's see get the decision let's see who actually enforces it and almost stress test it to a certain degree um and you're nodding away there <laughs> marking mark, mark me on my homework see if it works yeah, yeah that's right but don't forget i mean we step back I, I, i'm no apologist for wada i think it has many weaknesses but you've got to remember what it's achieved we've gone from the wild west everyone doing their own thing to the whole world almost having the same set of rules and, and standards and mechanisms and that in itself is an incredible achievement there is no legal instrument i know of that is as broadly applicable as the world anti-doping code not even human rights instruments and that is remarkable the first 15 years of wada was about compliance by athletes and athlete support personnel and working that through and compliance by signatories was a complete afterthought it was in there in the code but no one even thought about it and your compliance mechanism was and i've act for several ifs and you'd get a letter saying please send us your rules you'd send wada your rules and they'd see if you had all the mandatory provisions and if you did they'd say fine and that was it do you do any testing they didn't ask that do you, do, do you have an intelligence department? They didn't ask that. They didn't care. Not didn't care. They weren't able at that stage. 2015, they started a compliance program, which I have now overseen for a few years. And it's remarkable because we have a detailed standard. We have a department which sends out, first of all, everyone gets a questionnaire with 168 questions. And it says, have you done a risk assessment? Have you got a test distribution plan? If you say yes, it says, right, attach it. And if you don't attach it, then, it's, well, where is it? Uh, it's remarkable. Many people didn't have one, so now they do. How many tests do you do? Do you do an ABP program? Do you do steroid profiling? Do you have an intelligence department? Do you do this? Do you do that? So now it's a real question. And they don't just rely on their answers. You get their answers, and they, they receive a corrective action report. You've got you know, 10 critical non-compliances, 10 high priority and 10 other. You've got three months to fix those, six to fix those, nine to fix those. And they follow up. And so all of those potholes on the, on the field, the level playing field, are being filled in. So far, something like 3,000 corrective actions. They audit them. Not every one every year, maybe 15 to 20 audits every year. WADA sends a team, goes and sits with a signatory, the ITF, one of my clients, had it done recently. And they, and they sit with them and they say, well, show us this. Show us that. How do you do this? How do you do that? And then they get an audit report and it says, here are your corrective actions. If you don't correct them in time, non-compliance proceedings. So, and there are other mechanisms and tools that they use as well to monitor. It's become a real program so that now athletes can say, well, I'm being dealt with toughly, but so are signatories. And that means, quite apart from us, so are my competitors. So, yes, I think the compliance program now, I mean, compared to what it was, it's just a million light years away. But there's no doubt that this case is going to be 
the test case to see whether or not the rules work and, I suppose more pertinently, whether or not stakeholders, when they say we're all in this together, whether they mean it or whether they're now all going to try and wriggle out of it and say, well, yes, I know I said that, but I didn't really mean it for me. Because remember, one of the other aspects we haven't touched on yet of the recommendations is forget about participation, there's also hosting, yeah. right? So you, Russia cannot host any event in the four-year period and it can't bid in the four-year period to host events outside the four-year period. But, but obviously there's got the... And I've, I looked and I thought about it, I thought, wow, that's a, that's a, that is a significant sanction, uh, as you said, for a, for a country that prides itself so much on its uh, sporting prowess and, and, and national identity... However, I thought, God, immediately I thought oh, all the clauses, all the break clauses in in the agreements, whether or not they've actually written this into to place. And so I wondered, uh, you know, hence why there's that slight carve out. I wonder then going forward then if we're now going to see this going to be a new era where we start to see those, those maybe some, you know, the insurers maybe have got a view on this. We're going to start to see those provisions actually getting uh, put into all the sort of, uh, major events contracts. Yeah, look, we said there will be events in the next four years will have been awarded many years ago, and some of them are coming up. And so, while it's not stupid, we put into the standard, well, if it's legally and practically impossible, then you don't have to move them. But you better show that you put the provisions in place so that it's not just a question of, oh, well, we didn't you know, provide for that right. But, for example, if it's going to take place in first quarter of 2020 do we think it's reasonable to say you've got to shift it well no the answer is no but you are going to have to show if it's in two years time that you did something at the time that, that you granted the rights that you reserved the ability to pull it, pull out and if you didn't and you don't have a good reason well then there's a non-compliance issue i have to say the standard only came into force in 2018 so if they granted the event in 2017 pretty good excuse so I understand it's going to have to be a case-by-case, case, but I do think that it will have an impact and it, and it sends a message. You, Russia, have forfeited your place at the top table. And so I do think people need to take a look at the whole of the um, proposed consequences and and judge it over overall, not just focusing, well, you're allowing some pe athletes to compete um, in Tokyo. Look, let me not... I'm not going to pretend there will be a significant Russian presence. Well, there'll be a significant presence of Russian athletes. They will be neutral athletes. I don't think they should be Olympic athletes from Russia. I think they should be authorised neutral athletes. The detail of that will be worked out. But, again, by not being able to host these events, by not being able to participate as Russia in those events, that has a significant impact. And that's what you've got to judge and in judging proportionality. And isn't this... Yeah, I put on Twitter the other day, uh, the mighty Twitter, um, with my my couple of followers. But the, uh, I put that it's a sort of the perfect storm of sports, law, and politics sort of colliding. And so you could see that this officials, uh, like they're having not having officials involved, being quite tricky for a country where um, how you define an official, and particularly with the athlete entourage, that could be a bit tricky come the Tokyo Games, but I guess we'll have to see how that plays out. And so we're, we're looking, the the Rosada have got until the, is it the 26th, is it? The 26th? Uh, well, no, they got the notes on the 10th, so the uh, 31st. 31st. Yeah, as you can tell, this is why I'm not in economics. <laughs> but... Um, 
so they got to to the thirty first then to to appeal, and then uh, then we'll see what happens. John, um, thank you for taking the time out. I know you've got a hectic schedule. I appreciate you um, taking the time to explain it so in so much detail because, as I said, the quick reaction is one, and you can understand it. You know, this is not this is not what we expected. We wanted harder sanctions, but I just think it's helpful to put it into context, as into some of the thinking behind it, the reasoning behind it. Because I think if we can get to that point where everyone can understand each other's position a bit better, then the conclusions, you know, going forward and, and how we map a path forward, a positive path forward, is going to be much better for everyone. And the message that seems to me coming out of all of this is that how we and this is not only in this space this is i did an interview with the guys that perform and control risk the other day about the stuff that they those guys do there seemed to me this sort of evolution of now not just getting on paper the regulatory and legal structures in place but actually making sure they're compliant and having that risk assessment and compliance approach seems to be this next stage of the evolution of sports governance so thank you for your part in that thank you for taking the time out um i know you're short on time so no, i just really appreciate it thanks very much sean cheers well, sadly, that's all we have time for for this show. But remember, for all the latest legal issues and developments from the world of sport, go to lawinsport.com. We've got some exciting webinars to be launched in 2020. We have around 25 planned. Um, you can come to our football conference in May, our annual conference in September. And most of all, if you like what we do, become a member of Law in Sport. Tell people about it on social media, uh, via email, whatever. Share the information. And obviously, we'd love your comments and feedback, both positive and negative, if there are any. Or if there's any guests you'd like us to interview or speak to or any topics you'd like us to cover in the coming months. Other than that, wherever you are in the world, I hope you're having a wonderful day. And thank you so much for your support. And thank you for tuning in.